it's not just enough to get out into nature with your headphones on listening to drum and bass. That probably won't do you any good at all, or traffic noise next to the park. Uh, but when the senses combine, that's where sometimes the magic can happen in terms of well-being or productivity. Hi everyone, I'm Hetty Holmes and you are listening to Hacking Happiness with Dose, the podcast that explores what makes us feel good to get those happy hormones firing. My next guest is Professor Charles Spence, the world expert in multisensory perception and experience design. His new book, Sense Hacking, explores how to use the power of your sense for happier, healthy living, from increasing the temperature in the workplace to increase female performance, to smiling while exercising and sniffing peppermint to make you run faster, as well as watching a thriller to increase your chances of a date ending well. As ever, we are so thankful to our listeners for tuning in each week. We would love it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Also, please sign up to our newsletter if you haven't already at www.whateveryourdose.com forward slash newsletter. I hope you enjoy. Well, yeah, I've really enjoyed your book. It's brilliant. I guess you're enjoying a bit of time off after spending a lot of time focusing on that. There's a lot, a lot of work to get through. Um, but it's very amazing read and I, I I can see that you are like a world expert in multisensory perception you've spent is it 25 years that you spent as an Oxford professor a long time <laughs> uh, 23, 23 okay <laughs> um and you've consulted for some really huge brands as well haven't you like Unilever and PepsiCo Nestle um advising on multisensory design mm-hmm. I wondered if uh, um you might know uh Seymour right. Powell a a creative design agency called Seymour Powell. Have you heard of them before? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah I work I for think them. They, um, they, okay. Yeah, no, they did the um, design of the Lynx can that we worked on 15 years ago. Yes. In 2006 did the... or something, 2007. Yeah. Leather jacket, did I remember? Yeah, sorry. yeah. <laughs> Richard Seymour, Richard Seymour and Dick Powell. I, uh, yeah, no, I worked for them. It was my first job I ever got actually outside of uni. It was pretty cool. I remember walking in and they were all in leather jackets and motorbikes smoking in the courtyard. I thought, oh, that's pretty, pretty awesome. <laughs> that can... But yeah, no, it's um, it's great. So thank you anyway for taking the time to record with me today. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the DOSE podcast at all, but DOSE acronym for happy hormones, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. And so we like to structure our podcast themes kind of around those happy hormones. Um, And first of all, we like to talk about dopamine in terms of of career, motivation, what drives us. Uh, It's also, you know, very much linked with pleasure. And as you say in your book, you know, sensing the world around us is is pleasurable Um, and so there's a lot of people I think it's come from Silicon Valley that they've set this trend called dopamine fasting um, to combat Mm -hmm. the sensory overload that we're getting from technology so yeah I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit because I know you've touched on it in the book but for our listeners that haven't read Mm -hmm. the book it'd be great to hear you talk about it so uh I guess the sense hacking uh, book that just came out is all around um, trying to give people tips to, about how to use their senses to enhance well-being and uh, a bit social, cognitive, emotional. Um, and in there, kind of the scene is set by highlighting how I think uh, many of us are facing kind of a sensory imbalance, um, and in particular, uh, in our you know, many people on an everyday basis, talk about being sensory overloaded. There's too much information, too much, uh, too many alerts, too much visual stuff going on. Um, But when you look, when you break it down, it turns out that probably it's more of a sensory imbalance that it's, I think that our higher rational senses are really overloaded by digital technology. And it's our emotional senses that tend to be underwhelmed by the kind of environments that we find ourselves in. And the kind of pursuits that we tend to follow. Um, and in that sort of context, uh, I do mention the uh, tech titans of Silicon Valley and elsewhere, who have, um, probably from about 2019, I think the first press reports I, I've come across documented uh, these individuals who you might imagine to be you know, capable of anything and multi multitasking, uh, who are in fact uh, engaging in the latest trend of dopamine fasting which really, uh, when you sort of look at what they are doing, seems to be more like sensation fasting. So suggesting that they have a, a struggling, even they are struggling with an overload of uh, sensory inputs. 
uh, and they try and um, deal with that through not looking anybody in the eye uh, and through you know, carefully thinking about what they eat um, and trying to just reduce the kind of stimulation they get uh, in daily life so that then uh, when they uh, let themselves go <laughs> and go back to life as normal, uh, they're better able to deal with and maybe get more enjoyment from the kind of stimulation uh, that was formerly just too much. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that personally? Like, would you ever do a dopamine fast? Do you feel like you need one? Um, well, I probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't use the uh, 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 the term or the descriptor uh, dopamine fast. Um, but that notion of of um, of controlling or modifying uh, environmental stimulation, I think, is one that uh, I do engage in. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I've never had a mobile phone, so I'm cutting out some level of the distractions that that many people face. Um, and that being here in the middle of the uh, cloud forest, uh, away from everyone and everything, more or less, is effectively <laughs> doing the same thing. It's always replacing one kind of stimulation, uh, you know, the travel, the urban, the Anthropocene, the, with sort of nature, which is in its own way very stimulating, mm. but probably a kind of stimulation that we're maybe better adapted for, or at least better evolved for. Um, and that which I think does, uh, you know, the birds here at six, five, four o'clock in the morning are very loud, so it's not that auditory stimulation disappears, uh, but you are maybe more in touch with nature and there's more sense, fragrance, more variety, uh, and, and so probably there's more emotional senses that are kind of ramped up in an evolutionarily appropriate way, while the digital technology, the audio-visual stuff is is sort of suppressed um, and when you do get it, it tends to be more of a natural kind. So it's the kind of the blues and the greens uh, and the nature stimulation that uh, does seem to be so good for us. So yeah, I suppose I'm doing it in my way. Yeah, no, you are. Um, and so, so dopamine is often linked with kind of our motivation and drive. It kind of drives us towards our goals. And you talk a lot in the book about how we can hack our senses to make us more motivated in the workplace and more focused. And I found a really interesting point you made about how um, women perform better at a higher temperature. So they, I think, is that correct? Yeah, and, and so men men perform better yes. at a lower temperature, I think. Yeah, you talk a little bit about that. Yep. So it turns out that um, uh, you know, the workplace was until COVID the, where many of us spent much of our, maybe most of our waking lives, certainly <laughs> for some of us. Um, and I think you know, the, the, the makeup of the environment of the places where we work is very important. I mean, it feels like we can just, you know, we are our own bosses, we, our creativity, our ingenuity, our motivation, our drive are you know, internally generated. And yet, uh, what a lot of the research shows is, in fact, you know, the environments in which we find ourselves, on the one hand, they're always multisensory. There are always things to see and hear and smell, whether we realise it or not. And, and that multisensory environment, no matter where we are, always kind of affects us for good or for ill. Um, and in the case of the office, uh, they have been suggesting you know, a, a lot of the things that are done currently are not necessarily for the best. Uh, a lot of people, you know, obviously in, in open plan offices with all the background noise is one of the big problems uh, through to the more innovative companies, you know, bringing greenery in nature, greening the office like an Amazon headquarters, for example. Um, and in terms of touch and temperature in particular, um, that's perhaps a sense that people think less of in terms of their environment, but again, everywhere has a temperature and that temperature affects us, whether we're trying to get to sleep at night uh, or trying to work and not fall asleep during the day in the office. Um, but the guidelines for temperature uh, are set based on a middle-aged uh, white male. Uh, and uh, it turns out that uh, on average, women prefer a higher temperature uh, indoors than do men. Um, and so if the thermostat is set as recommended in all sort of big building regulations, that means it's pretty perfect for the um, men in the office, but not so for necessarily for the women. 
uh, and you see the biggest discrepancies with uh, Asian uh, female workers who tend to be the lightest on average in weight uh, with the least body fat. Uh, and for them, it can be a, you know, a matter of several degrees mm. off their perfect thermal comfort in the offices that are set for men. And, actually, and the evidence from a couple of studies then shows that it's not just a matter of comfort, but in fact, your performance in the workplace can be adversely affected if you find yourself in, in a working environment that is not to your temperature, mm. but to that of your, um, those of the other sex, say. Um, yeah, so interesting. I'd say then, then of course, the question is, you know, we do, do work in, in sort of mixed sex workplaces, so that's not going to go away. Um, so then how can we sort of deal with this conflict between the sexes, if you will? Um, and there one might think, you know, everything about getting those sort of those you know, individually heated chairs like you find in high-end cars uh, or through trying to use um, colour or other cues to maybe sort of uh, give the feeling of warmth um, without necessarily changing the actual uh, temperature. Mm, so and is it because women have a low metabolism? Yeah, and I guess it's sort of less uh, fat, less uh, low metabolism, I think, and less body fat on average. Um, and, um, I, 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 and and if you look at you know how much worse do men perform if you raise the temperature to the preferred ambient temperature for female workers versus how much do women performance deteriorate if the temperature uh, is lowered to what the average male prefers, then the costs to women are greater than the benefits to men. Uh, so in fact, I would suggest it would make more sense to set the standard closer uh, to what women uh, find comfortable. Uh, mm. Overall, uh, performance would be better. And you, um, dopamine's also linked with kind of, um, kind of, I guess, shopping, right? It's it kind of triggers when we go go on a spending spree, whether we're kind of on Amazon or hitting the high street. And I think you mentioned in your book that we are more like likely to spend money when there's slow music playing in the background as opposed to fast music. Is that right? Can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, yep. Yeah, so um, perhaps. Uh, the music is one of the, the the more salient. Again, one of the easiest, but probably it's one of the more salient uh, aspects of the environment. And 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 uh, from a range of situations, it uh, it appears that we sort of get entrained to uh, the musical beat. Um, and that can be in the gym, it can be shopping, it can be eating and drinking, um, and uh, by sort of slowing the music, potentially that will then slow our movement through a space. So shopping then, if we have the more time we spend in a shopping environment, perhaps the more we buy. Um, or you know, at other times when you look at some of the studies from sort of bars and restaurants there, places like the uh, Hard Rock Cafe and Planet Hollywood have it in their sort of mission statement that they will always play loud, fast music so that it increases drinking because they've got you know, evidence, based on evidence that 30% more is drunk <laughs> and purchased when it's loud, fast music than anything else. Uh, so it's both the tempo of the music, I think that's important, but also, you know, work on, on, on is it uh, music in the major or minor mode? Because that can affect our shopping behaviour. Uh, and then the kind of the type of music. Um, and I'm you know, sort of amazed at the number of places, be it sort of the supermarkets or the restaurants or the cafeterias or the wine shops, where playing classical music seems to uh, lead us to spend more. Um, and so again, you sort of wonder, well, surely, if, given that more of our shopping is going online these days, which of the strategies that are used uh, to, to make us part with our cash in a bricks and mortar store, which of those ones can go online? Uh, yeah. How long will it be before? Yeah. Uh, why isn't Amazon playing classical music when you browse their, yeah. <laughs> their websites? Yeah. People yeah, like millions, billions. <laughs> yeah, they probably would. And and just another one on on this dopamine pass before we move on to like oxytocin and relationships. So you you talked about how like when you have a really stressful meeting, a really good way to reset is by smelling a, a fragrance. Is there a specific type of fragrance, like a essential oil in particular, that 
that can really help with that? Like, is it as basic as lavender? Um, nothing wrong with a bit of lavender. So it's no. <laughs> quite complex in its own way. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think um, there's probably a couple of things. On the one hand, uh, probably the starting point is to think that maybe we're not really born with any particular responses to smells or response to what we think is smells good or bad. Uh, that smells sweet or delicious is all probably learnt as a function of experience. Um, and uh, hence why, you know, when there's nothing particularly stressful about the smell of cloves, except that's the smell many of us associate with a trip to the dentists mm-hmm. and so can evoke, provoke fear and anxiety, sweating and so on. Um, so in that case, you know, I sort of recommend in the hospital chapter, we'll just change, the, you know, hospitals and dentists should change their smell every six months. So that you, next time you go back, it smells different and you don't trigger the horrible memories through smell that you had of your previous fillings and such like. Uh, and for those working at home, I guess the problem is, part of the problem is, is, is difficulty separating work from home life, work from leisure, if it's in the same space. With, um, so anything you can do to change the environment can help. And particularly in the case of, you know, these sort of stressful meetings that probably you're not aware that your own home smells. None of us are unless we come back from the holiday, long holiday. Um, but nevertheless, if we've just had a stressful meeting, our brains will kind of encode that stress together with the smell of the place, even if it's detected subconsciously. And hence why just changing the smell for anything else is probably a good first step to uh, helping sort of reset mentally. Um, and then, okay, if I'm going to change the scent to something different, are there some scents that are better than others? And then that might get you into the sort of aromatherapy uh, space of, uh, yes, there do seem to be certain essential oils or their synthetic counterparts. Uh, I'm a bit on the fence about whether there's anything essential about the essential oils. Um, But there are certain scents that, you know, will will alert us, the peppermints, the citrus, there are other scents that will will calm us down, help us to sleep like the lavender. Um, And then someone might go in that direction. and what I think, I can't tell whether it's original thought or not, and the book sort of suggests, well, there's been a long history of aromatherapy, mm. very often with mixed results. If you take sort of a hard, serious, scientific look uh, at some of the data, in part that's because uh, there's no, no benefit to companies paying for the properly done research like there is for sort of, you know, patentable medicines. Mm. Um, but is this, you know, these aromatherapy if we can sort of reframe that as that smelling nature essentially it's smelling the lavender the the mint the citrus the uh verbena whatever else it might be um and so why shouldn't we think that smelling nature if that's what aromatherapy is doesn't give us just as much benefit as hearing nature the sounds of the birds or seeing it uh, uh that is you know, being increasingly documented um mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a real boom, isn't there? And uh, it's midi-scent category. Essential oils kind of at the heart of it. And they're having a bit of a resurgence. Um, but there's another study I came across. I don't think I found it from your book, but uh, it's a Japanese yeah. study, I think, where people smelled coffee, which increased productivity, just the smell of it. Um, mm-hmm. Which, yeah, made me think maybe yeah. that's the way the, the scent industry will go and kind of taking actually smells like from home, like baking and coffee to kind of trigger mm-hmm. good Yep. So, so, uh, um, yeah, I think definitely uh, there on the one hand, I, I do wonder how much during the first, well, first thing to say is probably, you know, there's been a lot of research on sort of well-being scents from uh, the likes of international flavours and fragrances over in the States, one of the world's mm-hmm. big fragrance houses. Uh, and the kind of summary of their years of research was that uh, ambient, pleasant fragrancing uh, of the home or office uh, has a bigger effect when we are stressed. If you're kind of calm and tranquil to begin with, adding the fragrance won't do much for you. But in their studies, it was more when we are stressed. So presumably exactly like what most of us are during the lockdown, that these scents become take on a particularly powerful role. Um, and that under the f- during the first lockdown, or two in the UK, then all the newspapers reporting about the increase in sales of wheat and home baking and bread. And I sort of wonder, is that something about, you know, we're all touch hungry, so we're sort of kneading the dough and that's why, is, is bread comforting? Not 
it's not really a well-known comfort food, or is it just you know, the smell of bread? We know such an appealing smell from the supermarket. And if we're spending so much of our time in our own homes, maybe that fresh bread smell, the fresh baking smells, not only help you to sell your home, but also help you to be happier in your home uh, during uh, stress. As for the coffee, um, yeah, that's one that's um, curious one, I think. Uh, I'm very interested in it, and, and we've done lots of work on coffee and coffee cups and, and coffee aroma over the years, uh, and caffeine. Um, and uh, yeah, I suspect it may be that uh, it, it's the aroma of coffee that does um, more than the caffeine, mm. at least amongst those who sort of regularly drink caffeinated coffee. Um, yeah, because I mean, case, I, I get I but, get the sensation of a high from having a decaf. I mean, it's just the smell of it and the kind of yeah, texture yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, 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 so then you'll say, well, you know, decaf isn't doing what it's supposed to do, is it? Yeah. If it's got the same, yeah. if it's indistinguishable in aroma from the caffeinated mm -hmm. cup, and it is the aroma that is doing the work because of it's some sort of association with caffeine previously, mm -hmm. then, then yeah, put, don't, don't bother with the decaf. Won't do exactly. any good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so but, then, yes, but then I mean, I've seen some who are, who are sort of spraying then, you know, thinking about, okay, taking that further saying, okay, if it is the, caf the aroma of coffee, at least amongst those who regularly drink caffeinated coffee that does the work, then, you know, they are selling sort of spray, either caffeine uh, toothpastes, which might not work, mm -hmm. or uh, a kind of coffee scent, just so like a little, like, like a little lipstick thing you stick in your handbag and then when you feel like a lift, mm. get that hit of coffee aroma and... Yeah. Off you go. <laughs> yep. Conquer the world. Amazing. You touched on the touch hunger there, which brings me to like, the yep. next part about like bonding relationships oxytocin um and obviously during the pandemic a lot of us have been separated from our loved ones at the start of your book you talk about touch as the most probably important of the senses can you talk about that a little bit more and, and why that mm -hmm. is um well uh i think as one of the more emotional senses so I want to say, you know, I want to put this distinction between the higher rational senses that overstimulated the vision and the hearing because that's what technology can do uh, and the what have traditionally been considered the lower, the base senses that aren't really worth study or stimulation, uh, in which category I put sort of touch and smell and taste. Um, and it's that imbalance that we're paying too much of the higher senses and not enough of the uh, emotional senses that's part of the problem. Uh, and, uh, and in the world of touch, you know, that lack of tactile stimulation has a name, touch hunger, kind of a, a kind of evocative phrase that was came out from uh, Tiffany Field in the States uh, a while ago. Um, and uh, I remember the, the Sense Hacking book is kind of a, a follow-up to a report I did for ICI back in 2003, The Secrets of the Senses, uh, about senses and well-being. And back then, Tiffany Field was publishing hundreds of articles about you know, the, the benefits of massage and touch and aromatherapy, touch and massage. Um, and it was not really sort of taken so seriously by many in the scientific community, cognitive neuroscientists and the like. Um, but now roller clocks forward almost 20 years to sense hacking and suddenly, you know, there's a huge emergence of growth in, um, in, the, in the beneficial effects of stimulating the skin. In parks of the discovery of the C tactile afferents in sort of the hairy skin that likes to be stroked and that uh, uh, release sort of pleasure hormones in the, uh, uh, as a result. Um, so suddenly there's a, a science behind touch and it's almost like something that you need. Um, and why is touch the most important sense of them all? Well, according to one definition, if it's in terms of the size of the sense or the sense organ, then it's something like 16 to 18% of our body mass uh, is uh, the skin. Hmm. Uh, which you know, completely outranks any of the other uh, senses, much heavier than your eyes or your. Uh, and of course, that's not the, That's only one way to sort of you know, rank the senses. Um, uh, but maybe in terms of primary somatosensory, primary sensory areas in the brain, perhaps the somatosensory cortex is bigger, the biggest as well, perhaps. Um, 
So probably by lots of definitions, it's not the most important, but I think it's certainly one of the most neglected of our senses. Uh, it is certainly the biggest. Uh, and I really think you know, there's growing evidence for this sort of, to, to say that, you know, I mean, it's in other species as well, uh, our skin needs to be stimulated. Hmm. Uh, and now yeah. we learn more about, you know, the, the optimal parameters that will deliver the biggest sort of pleasurable and rewarding hit. And for me, fascinating, you mentioned that you know, uh, uh, I've been working over the years and the lab in Oxford was funded for the first 13 years by Unilever uh, when we were doing our uh, Lynx deodorant work and other stuff. Um, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of work that came out of there that sort of helped to highlight the existence of these sort of sea uh, tactile efferents that are only in the hairy skin, that are not in the kind of the palms of the hand, that are not in the soles of the feet. And these are the surfaces that all psychologists, all scientists study, the fingertips. And in my book with uh, Alberto Galacci from 2014, we kind of summarised uh, all the touch research that has been done. I say, which part of the skin did they actually study in that touch study? And it turns out, you know, 95% of it's all just the fingertip, that little tiny bit there. And why it feels contiguous with the rest of my skin. In fact, you know, different receptors here. And those are the ones that, that, that you know, that like to be stroked. Uh, pleasure receptors, as they're called, and, and how could we not have known that they were there before? And now that we do, how can we uh, sort of optimize touch, either physically or or, or, or digitally, if we can? Uh, uh, and I think that's something for me has been really brought out by the sort of COVID pandemic of seeing all these uh, elderly individuals in care homes and hospitals who are not allowed to. Uh, be with their family and loved ones and sort of, you know, saying, the only thing I want in life, please, please just let me hug my family. Hmm. And they can sometimes, you know, they can see them through the screen, they can hear them through the intercom, they can communicate, but the one thing they can't do is touch. And that comes out so powerfully in so many of these sort of first person testimonials about you know, that, that need for touch hunger. Hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned in your book later on, I think towards the end that um, it's a form of torture, isn't it? Being sensorily deprived, like especially through deprived. touch. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a form of torture, yeah. which I mean, it's, yeah, when you think about or, that. Or, 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 or can be, yeah, uh, sort of a, uh, uh, it sort of has this sort of uh, dual status that, um, you know, back you know, 20, 20 years ago when I was doing work with sort of ICI and some of the fragrance houses, then uh, we were working on campaigns for perfumes um, some of which involved these kind of sensory deprivation tanks that were very popular then, where you sort of float in body temperature water without any dark, utter darkness, uh, without any smell or taste or really touch because your body's sort of floating in body temperature water. Uh, and that people were paying money for, supposedly because it helped them to recuperate, to recharge, uh, to re-energize. But if that deprivation gets longer and if it's you know if it's forced on you from the outside then suddenly this thing that people are, are paying money for to help them which is something that's you know one of those supposedly yeah there's to many technically uh, a form of torture um, mm. i guess it goes back to the dopamine fasting thing i guess if you like you said if you if you kind of put it on yourself or something just to kind of rewire your behavior then it's fine if it's in a controlled way mm -hmm. but if yeah if it was thrust on you like mm -hmm. taking all your pleasure all your pleasure away it's pretty horrible pretty horrible process but um yeah that's really interesting and also you touch on on dating in the book as well which oxytocin obviously related yep. to you know the bonding we have with our friends and our loved ones our relationships so you talk about some like big stereotypes like wearing high heels like wearing red um and some other things mm -hmm. that can improve our well i think also you mentioned about like your date is more likely to end in a success if you watch a thriller so you yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'd love Wearing to hear you. Yeah, you are. <laughs> it's like orange to me. But that's right. Well, yeah. yes, it's the light. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Um, your thoughts on dating? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess one of the themes that sort of crops up at various points in the book is this notion of uh, sensation transference, as some call it. Um, it probably underpins lots of the, of the work that we do over the years in the lab. 
Um, and it sort of makes no sense, but sort of the idea that uh, we can't keep what we feel about one thing separate from what we feel about something else. Kind of our sensations, our feelings kind of bleed one into another. So you know, if we're trying to enhance the, um, the sexiness of the, of the touch from a loved one, then playing a bit of Marvin Gaye uh, does lead people, in the lab at least in Germany, to rate human or robot touch as sexier um, when hearing the music. So it's almost what we think about the music transfers to what we feel about the, what we think about the touch. Uh, and in the context of dating, then there are uh, a number of studies, some classic, I guess, now from back in the 70s, suggesting that if um, anything you can do if you're in that dating frame of mind to uh, increase arousal, you may be either by, you know, uh, asking for a date on a wobbly rope bridge, or if you can't find one of those, uh, asking for a date when you're uh, on the... Um, on the roller coaster ride will work, or uh, failing that, then you know, sort of a, a thrilling movie. The feelings that we have about the bridge, the roller coaster, or the movie, uh, and the arousal we feel in response to those situations, we may misattribute to the person we're with. I think, wow, I'm feeling so aroused. That must be. They must be. They must be them who's doing it to me, uh, and we treat, t take that as a sign of, you know, uh, I guess uh, of like and, uh, and desire, uh, and that uh, yeah, my wife is in the room. I think she's not listening. Uh, mm -hmm. That you know, in their book that then you can probably do that as well through through a very spicy cuisine that again will sort of get people aroused, <laughs> and flustered and hot and sweaty. Uh, uh, my my first hand experience suggestion is that 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 uh, works too as, as as a transference from the food. <laughs> Uh, to your uh, date, um, yeah. and, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, it's sort of yeah. Um, uh, what one also sees is that there are these, as you mentioned, sort of stereotypes of what is um, uh, thought to be attractive. I mean, that's uh, men ask, well, what, why do women wear high heels? Because they or men or both uh, I think that's attractive why so is it because they are taller or because it changes the, the curvature of the spine um, uh, the suggestion that wearing red um, uh, seems to make you more attractive it makes it more likely that you'll have your meal paid for you it means you might get a bigger tip it means you'll probably get more likes on a dating app if you're holding even a red computer bag, according to some Asian research. Uh, some of the data are slightly uh, questioned um, as part of, you know, the uh, uh, trouble with sort of the psychological and other sciences about reproducibility. Some of the studies are, are, are small, but it seems to be overall, I sort of say, well, it seems to be a, a good body evidence in support of of sort of the red arousal, there's maybe an evolutionary link in there too. Um, there, uh, yeah, it is sort of curious that at the same time as these sort of stereotypes, uh, you know, or through to you know, eating oysters, <laughs> sort of, uh, play to that's been you know, put in there in literature and in painting uh, for centuries as an aphrodisiac. Well, why, why is that there as this almost cliched uh, aphrodisiac? Well, maybe there is a scientific reason behind it. Um, and, uh, and probably the sort of you know, evolutionary cues and triggers are not to be dismissed and probably you know, that they um, like hunter-gatherers with a, uh, a lower-pitched voice will then have more mating success. Uh, although the one, I, the one I, I can't quite resolve in the book is this sort of, you know, two to four D ratio, the ratio between your second and fourth digit. Hmm. That sort of predicts uh, various masculine traits and ought to be very, very sexy. I'm not sure if mine's good I or bad, really, but it ought to be very sexy, but it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> so why is that kind of uh, signal of, 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 of quality not something that we focus on? Yeah. Uh, unless we do something, unless, unless we do that, that's why we put the ring on that finger. 
okay that could be why yeah. well yeah if you're doing it by chance you'd be more likely to pick one of the other ones but does that sort of draw your attention to, to i don't know but then there's some egyptian thing that that was the that was where the heart vein or something went to or something is that why why it started out there but you never know <laughs> yeah super interesting um so getting to serotonin which is often linked with kind of our mood stabilizing hormone and um, self-care mental well-being um uh, how are some ways that we can hack our senses to kind of foster well-being and kind of confidence you talk a lot about like getting out into nature um into green spaces that's that's a hugely beneficial thing we can do to our well-being um and also kind of ways that we can um hack our, our sleep i guess through better sleep hygiene and things like that to improve yep. our well-being so yeah could you talk a little bit about that um so i think um we have probably both uh nature and sleep turn out to be key Again, writing 20 years ago when the ICI report was sort of on senses and early-ish evidence, little bits that you get out into nature was good for you. And that whole literature has just exploded over the last couple of decades. Um, it has a name, The Nature Effect now, many books written about it, and study after study these these last uh, few weeks and months during towards the end of the first year of COVID, uh, as more and more people study the benefits, especially under these times of, of stress, of getting out into nature. Um, so it would have to be the big smile. Uh, so there's probably a thing in the book as well as well. It's probably no surprise to anybody that being out in nature makes you feel better. Probably, mm. um, you don't need a psychologist to tell you that. And yet, what the psychology suggests is that none of us know how much better we're going to feel. And it's sort of that failure of effective forecasting that maybe is a big part of the problem. And, and when you do the studies, and I haven't done any, but when, when others do the studies where you sort of you know, send out a uh, text alert or something to people wherever they are, whoever they are, whenever, and say, what are you doing right now? Where are you? Who are you with? How, how, what's your mood like? Then it is being out in nature that gives you the biggest boost uh, to your mental health in the moment, but maybe also in terms of you know, long-term susceptibility to disease as well from those who happen to live in areas with more green uh, uh so that's a very powerful one. I think for me, as well, there's so much talk about the blues and greens, so the blue gym and, uh, and greens being stimulating. We shouldn't forget about the, you know, the importance of hearing nature um, as well. And then of course that, then smelling nature, uh, and perhaps even touching it as I'll be doing later today as I get out into the garden here. Um, so you know, trying to get having the senses, giving you kind of congruent stimuli, stimulation it's not just enough to get out into nature with your headphones on listening to drum and bass. That mm. probably won't do you any good at all or traffic noise next to the park. Uh, but when the senses combine, that's where sometimes the magic can happen in terms of well-being or productivity. Um, and the other thing is definitely sleep and sleep hygiene. And that was one that was probably the real eye-opener for me uh, in researching the book. Um, just because I used to be one like, you know, Margaret Thatcher from my uh, Somerville College where I teach or Ronald Reagan sort of four hours a night and happy to be so productive uh, and then reading Matthew Walker's book about uh, why we sleep mm. uh, sort of uh, transformed my thinking about the importance and that how you know what are 13 out of the 15 top causes of death uh, your chances of, of dying of any of those uh, increase significantly but the less sleep you have so, so anything you can do to get a good night's sleep uh, what we have a perhaps the most profound and both in short and long term uh, productive well being, and for that it's uh, yeah, everything from the lavender that's mentioned, um, hmm. uh, I, I, I really maybe to, uh, uh, through to you know reducing our use of devices before bedtime or making sure we have red filters uh, to avoid the blue light that kind of tricks our brain into thinking it's morning. Um, through some of the nice stuff on on, on the benefits of uh, a hot bath, as is popular in Asia. Um, through to, you know, if, you, if you've got a hot water bottle, putting it by your feet, that's sort of warming up your extremities, can help uh, get you off to sleep uh, better. Um, and that, uh, uh, to think, and, and not to fool oneself into thinking, as I once did that, you know, having sleeping pills, well, they knock you out, they'll give you more sleep. 
and yet it turns out they don't give you the right kinds of sleep. Mm. Um, uh, 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 I say it you know, from studies that we've, we've worked a lot with Johnson & Johnson um, on sort of maternal uh, and baby health and interactions and stuff. Uh, uh, and there you see it from right you know, from the uh, preterm and, uh, and uh, early infancy, the benefits of pleasant scent. Be it baby powder, flower of heliotropin from this part of the world, or, or, or lavender, increasing uh, sleep length and quality, reducing of the child, reducing stress and enhancing sleep of their parents, through to you know some of the striking work. It was only only a few individuals um, that published in the Lancet from doctors saying you know, we've got these patients who've been on sleeping tablets for for years, uh, and when we switch them off, I wait a little bit. And then sent the, the, the um, sent the room with lavender. They're getting you know, as much sleep, but of the right kind of sleep uh, than they were on the pills and medication. So why aren't we going for these more sort of sense hacking routes more often than relying on sort of pharmaceutical uh, interventions? Uh, mm, uh, so it comes back comes back a bit to the comes back a bit to the thing of. Uh, you know, is it partly that in order to fund the research, you need an awful lot of money and, uh, and you can't really make that back from any of these sort of natural sensory stimuli? So there's just less, that's why the research that is out there is kind of weaker and smaller individually. Mm. But, but when you see, you know, in, 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 in literature and in novels and in plays, you know, lavender has been talked about in the context of sleep for centuries. Uh, and so probably that's not by accident. Um, and that maybe even there's you know, some work in, in rats or mice, I forget which, published uh, last year by a Japanese group, showing that, you know, that presumably uh, rats and mice haven't really had much context of, you know, lavender-scented things, being told that lavender-scented things sort of help you to get to sleep, and yet they too showed... Um, uh, physiological changes consistent with a more kind of direct automatic uh, impact of that uh, essential oil mm. yeah so it is pretty complex after all not not as basic as i said at the start it's uh, it's pretty powerful stuff isn't it <laughs> um but yeah so it, well, temperature is also very important isn't it when we sleep i think the optimum temperature is somewhere between like 16 to 18 and I mean I know this from being a mum you get these yeah. little kind of thermo growth thermometers you put in the baby's rooms and it's orange between I think up to about 19 and then it goes red if it's above that which to me feels really nice because it's like going back to like you said the Ethiopian highlands where we evolved five million years ago like that's where my body yeah. feels nice yeah. around that state around 20 21 <laughs> but apparently that's not healthy for the babies so yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I think, you know, was it for that sort of five degree increase in um, bedroom temperature, reducing you know, sleep by sort of 30 minutes in that kind of yeah. medium range? I guess, I mean, you know, very few English homes are air conditioned in the way there are in other countries that are more accustomed to high temperature. So every yeah. summer when you have know, that hot weather, uh, sleep under the, under the ceilings and that's, yeah, just cannot can't get to sleep as a when the temperature gets too high. Uh, for me, it would be the, the cooler, the better. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, that's, not, not just the not just the um, maybe the, not just the ambient temperature, but sort of also your temperature uh, and trying to sort of uh, uh, reduce the core body temperature, being kind of a, a, a key. It's sort of signal that for our brain tells us that it's time to go to sleep, and maybe that's you know is that why we is that why we lie down to sleep in parks? That helps to increase the uh, uh, flow of blood to the periphery compared to when we stand up, and that's also why you know maybe you know putting the hot water bottle by your feet would again increase uh, thermal transfer from the core. And hence, you know, we have sort of try to trick your brain into uh, sleeping. Because it can be, you know, it can, it can be as much uh, that that struggle to get to sleep 
mm. in the first place that there's a problem for many. Yeah. And have you heard about this craze in infrared blankets? Well, they're kind of like these sleeping bags that you get into and they've got infrared in them. I've been sent one by a company from New in New York and I've yet to try it yet. But the idea of getting into like a hot <laughs> sleeping bag isn't, I guess, the I don't know, the most appealing prospect, but it's apparently meant to get the happy hormones firing and meant to make you really relaxed. And I don't know if you've ever come across them. No, no, no one sent me one of those yet. No. <laughs> um, clearly, clearly the sleep market is is huge and growing very rapidly. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And that has, has all happened over the last, it seems, few years. Uh, well, that's because of you know growing awareness of problems with sleep, or just that you know the technology allows for better monitoring of sleep quality. Um, I'm not quite why it is, but anyway, the, yeah. So you see all manner of inventions, you know, mm -hmm. kidney-shaped pillows that vibrate and warm, or lights that sort of glow and throb in different patterns and different shapes. Um, and while yeah, my sense from I haven't tried any of them, uh, but my sense was uh, there's a lot of nonsense out there, a lot of claims being made, um, a lot of journalists getting very excited about the latest new gadget. Uh, mm. They say, okay, then sure, so surely somebody's done a study by now to see whether it does work. Um, and I couldn't really find anything mm. uh, in support of any of them. And maybe it's just some of these you new know, technologies are too new, but you know, a number of them have been out there for two or three years. and. Again, um, I just, yeah, I don't see the evidence. Mm. I see Does the, that the hunger for them. Uh, yeah. Does an infrared blanket appeal uh, to you at all? Well, not really. No, no. Um, can, can you see why it would benefit people? I think I'd be more. I'd be, not necessarily. No. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is, uh, I mean, what I might link it to, I think British Airways were trialing some sort of illuminated wired up blankets for their business passengers a few years ago. Mm. I'm not sure if it links in at all to that, um, which then sort of disappeared. Uh, through to, you know, there was a craze for a while of, you know, it was it sort of uh, illuminating the back of your knee to try and help cure jet lag yeah. uh but again that one didn't didn't work um i suppose you know there's that sort of sense of you know anything you can try and do to recreate the uh, environment of the womb mm. is somehow reassuring and if you know that's why we like the sound of the waves because they sort of go at the same rate as our mother's heart would have done and, and a warm yeah, cocoon yeah. maybe gets you <laughs> Yeah, I'm just seeing all of these things come back around being, you know, being a mum. So I've got all of these kind of gadgets in my home at the moment, like the kind of the, all these things like you're saying, you know, the lights, the thermometers, the, the kind of the, the sounds that mm. recreate the womb, all of that, that, you know, has been transferred into mm. like adult gadgets. Even like the fact that we sip on lattes all through the day, it's just like basically being a baby again, isn't it? It's just kind of that constant reassurance of, of nursing, <laughs> I guess. That's how I see it. But yeah, so moving on to endorphins, which we often associate with exercise and kind of, you know, fitness. Um, you talk a bit in your book about how we can improve physical, our physical fitness performance through um, through smelling peppermint. Is that right? Just having a sniff of peppermint can mm -hmm. improve our performance. That's really interesting. So we can actually harness essential oils uh, to make us better runners, better better in our workouts. Otherwise, I suppose we put, we put peppermint in our, in our toothpaste to help wake us up mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a you know, sort of a long tradition of chewing gum often mint flavored for its supposed effects on um, so that, that might be doing much the same thing as in uh, I think it's Rowdenbush's study from the states on sort of you know, uh, uh, runners or sprinters uh, inhaling the peppermint um, and uh, yeah, at the same time you know it's what sort of struck me as much as that was also just you know these sort of you know these um, uh, sort of glucose mouth washes mm. that you know all these sort of professional sports people or the footballers you know have a swig around have some sort of carbohydrate rich drink and then spit it out mm. and you've had nothing but a taste sensation you're not, you haven't 
ingested anything, and yet they can you know, perform significantly, consistently uh, better because of our sort of a brain. And I suppose in that sense, because of our brain predicting what is about to come to the stomach, and by mm. being able to predict, because normally when you taste carbohydrates and or sense carbohydrates in the mouth, then twenty minutes later, maybe you have or however long it is, you then have the extra resources and bring, by being able to predict. What's about to happen? You should be in a slightly better place. Yeah, there's a lot packed into this book, and it's uh, where can we buy it? Is it is it published by Penguin? Who's your publisher? No, Viking, an imprint of Penguin. Uh, Viking Penguin. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Amazon and all good booksellers. If if when they open again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if yeah. they open again. But, yeah. No, it, it took me a while to read. I actually downloaded the Audible in the end and just kind of dipped into it in and out because it's quite it's a lot of information packed in there but I love what you've done at the end as well where you kind of summarise the best kind of ways to hack your senses um, which kind of summarises the book it's really really useful and I guess I'm, I'm most interested in exercise and fitness because that's the background of the magazine and you know we're all our audience they are, and, yep. our, and our readers they love you know multi-sensory studios like you describe in the book you know that evoke nightclubs this idea of forest bathing yep. and you know all these ways that we can kind of yep. hack our senses to make us feel more pleasure essentially and and we call ourselves healthy hedonists mm -hmm. and you talk about sense you know sensing the world around us as being kind of about pleasure essentially and um, so kind of flipping that to make us have healthier habits is kind of the, i guess the core takeaway that i found from this but yeah, it's, it was a really, really interesting read. So so thank you, I guess. And uh, yeah, okay. enjoy your sabbatical. <laughs> when will yeah, you be bit heading of, back? Bit of forest bathing right now. Yeah, it oh, looks like um, it. Well, it depends if, if, if they let me back into the country or yeah. uh, if they stick me in one of those horrible hotels for a few weeks. But uh, yeah. plan to be in September, probably. Okay, oh, wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll let you get back to the day, but thank you very much for your time. And uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. If you have any questions about today's podcast, please drop us a line at hello at whateveryourdose.com.